This is the fourth and final week of the School of Library Service Rare Book School. One of the classes this week is preservation for rare book librarians, and I wonder if the two instructors would stand up so that everybody can admire you. Pamela Darling and Carolyn Harris, celebrated uh, in these parts both, as well as others. And the book Illustration to 1860 is being taught by Joan Friedman and a friend. Those of you who follow, <laughs> those of you who follow Book Arts Press etching and engravings classes will take a connoisseur's interest in the etchings that the two sections of book illustration did this morning and this afternoon. In all cases, I think those are the first etchings that the students have ever been responsible for. And you come up and see their etchings afterwards. There was a wonderful joke in the New Yorker many years ago. It's two ladies of the night in an art gallery looking in puzzlement at a print on the wall. And one of the ladies is saying to the other, I know what an etching is, but what in hell is a seriograph? <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> uh, those of you who come to... Yes, yeah, right those of you who come to the lecture that Eleanor Garvey is giving here on Thursday will have a chance to see the book illustration to 1860s engravings and woodcuts as well. A busy week. It's conceivable that there's somebody in the room who has not been in the room for the past couple of weeks and I would like before we begin our speech to sell something very briefly. Take those and take those and pass them around. In the spring of 1982, the School of Library Service sponsored a conference, an invited conference of private press printers. There were 60 of them who met in this room for the better part of three days and concluded their activities with a book fair and exhibition held on Saturday, May 22nd, 1982. The proceedings of that conference were taped and over the past year, we transcribed them and edited them, and the result has been published last week. The handout that's being passed around should have text on the back, as well as a reproduction of the title page on the front. Some of them seem defective. There'll be more copies after. These proceedings, which are extensively illustrated and 126 pages long, sell for the very modest price of $10, and will be available to anyone who wishes to buy a copy from Arnold Arcolio, who's sitting over there on the radiator, uh, in room 505 at the reception, which immediately follows this lecture. This lecture is given by an old friend of the School of Library Service. I think that he has lectured here uh, under Book Arts Press or other auspices as often as any other single person, perhaps more often than any other single person, since 1972. Two, I think it was, when he first spoke here on Grove's lecture, on uh, Grove's dictionary, and has spoken since on uh, all manner of topics. Tonight he speaks to us, uh, I believe for the first time, on w one of the many things he does for a living. As head of conservation at the British Library, he speaks to us tonight on conservation and after Mr. Nicholas Barker. Talking of uh, cartoons reminds me of a cartoon by that great genius of the macabre, Ronald Searle, who once did a cartoon showing a darkly handsome pianist with long hyacinthine black curls turning away from the piano on one of those little revolving uh, piano stools that people go in for and saying, and now, 96 nocturnes composed by myself. <laughs> and after Terry's introduction, you may have felt that you were in for 96 nocturnes. Well, if you go to sleep, I shan't notice. And... Uh, all I can say in defense of the subject about which I am to bore you 
is that though boring, it is curiously captivating, and it's hooked me. It's a subject which is bounded, as far as I'm concerned, by the needs of the British Library where I work. And if, on this occasion, I'm really speaking only about conservation as seen from the vantage point of Bloomsbury in London, it, I it is partly out of a decent modesty of trying to refrain from prescribing for other people's problems, and also I in the slightly less modest hope that uh, what afflicts us may in some ways be problems which afflict other people as well and that others can learn from an experience which is now over two centuries old. You see, when in 1753 Sir Hans Sloane's bequest of his collections to the British nation was accepted, the first action of the trustees, uh, who he had appointed in his will, was to look for premises. Montague House was, uh, in Bloomsbury, was conveniently vacant and was purchased for £10,000. For almost a century, it remained the home of the British Museum. Thus, the collections came first and the accommodation for them second. A, a pattern which has repeated itself ever since. It is, I suppose, the proper order, post-est Ocasia Calva. If you don't catch fortune by the forelock as she whizzes past, you're apt to find that she's bald as you watch her retreating back for you. But the accumulation of material, more and more of it, of more and more diverse kinds, in surroundings less and less fit to provide the conditions of display and use now required, has brought about a crisis. Conservation, in its new absolute sense, is now linked in the public mind with a crisis, however and whenever it is applied. Books, mind you, have always led threatened lives. There are always those ready to burn them, from the Inquisition to the modern publisher who endorsed the Atkinson Report. The Atkinson Report, I should explain, was a splendid report by uh, some university librarians on the state of university libraries, which said that there was a simple solution in dealing with restricted uh, library budgets, which was to reduce the number of books to meet the number of people and yards of shelves available to accommodate and dispose of them. So uh, when this report came out, there was a publisher who wrote to the paper, the Times, of course, uh, with a, a heartfelt endorsement of what the report said and referred en passant, to, in a phrase which caught my eye, to the infernal permanence of the printed book. <laughs> well, so long as it is permanent, I don't care if it belongs downstairs, so to speak. But the... Burners are, in fact, a small troop compared with the giant forces of neglect. It is possible to argue, and quietists do, that neglect is good for books, that the survival of books from late antiquity is more due to their being left alone than any deliberate attempt to preserve them. I remember uh, putting it to uh, that great and good and now sadly deceased scholar, Neil Kerr, that really cathedral chapters in Britain had a hell of a lot to answer for uh, over the thousand years during which they had, on the whole, neglected the libraries put to their charge. And I can still remember him looking at me in his shy way and putting his head on one side and said, oh, you know, they could have done a very great deal worse. But still, the plain fact of the matter is that for every book that survives, thousands have been lost by neglect. And in recent years, the fragile durability of books has been threatened by a host of new dangers. First came the change, and I'm talking about London now, but it could, I guess, as easily apply to any large city in this country. The change from wood to coal fuel for domestic and industrial purposes. Wood burns cleanish, but coal smoke, noxious itself, deposits a thin film of gritty grease wherever it permeates. The grit held by the grease, works into the hinge of a leather-bound book and cuts through the board as effectively as a bandsaw. 
From the 19th century, gaslighting became common, increasing the coal vapor discharge within the library. We didn't have gaslighting in the library, thank God, but there was enough of it outside. And this, particularly the prevalence of sulfur dioxide, had a generally bad effect. It was the cause of what we call red rot, the breakdown of leather into a, le a reddish powder, which afflicts all libraries with leather-bound books in urban areas. Anybody who's had to face it knows what I mean because it covers your clothes in reddish stains which is extremely hard to get out. The dry heat from central heating systems has now made the overheating of public buildings an, a ubiquitous discomfort. The British Library has not escaped this universal curse which afflicts all its storage areas. True, in our country, we have not suffered the higher temperatures or the special dangers of steam heat prevalent in this country but it has been enough to make books dangerously brittle and to accelerate the growth of acidic decay. And if, if coal gas pollution is now diminished, its place has been taken by the discharge of, discharge of oxides of nitrogen and ozones from all kinds of mechanical transport and industrial use. You may not be able to see it, but it's hell just the same. Now, up to 1800, the staple material of books and archives was made from rags by traditional methods. The virtually pure cellulose pulp has proved remarkably resilient, even in the adverse conditions to which it has been exposed. It's worth noting that Abbot Trittheim, at the end of the 15th century, questioned its durability as opposed to the older staple of vellum. It had lasted two centuries, he noted. Would it last longer? Was the invention of printing the engine of survival it was now supposed to be? Events have proved him wrong, but only wrong in his own time. The invention of the paper-making machine with its demands for engine sizing with alum rosin introduced a destructive element into paper itself. Worse, the contemporary development of paper machine printing created a world demand for paper that outran the supply of rags. The introduction of esparto grass as a material in 1861 was a beneficial change, but it was never cheap or easy to handle, and its use died out in a century. The introduction of wood in 1880, which is now the universal staple, has proved the greatest of all problems to those concerned with the preservation of paper. Acids are used to digest it. Mechanically digested paper is even more prone to pick up acids from an ever more polluted atmosphere. And worst of all, it is not pure cellulose. It contains a proportion of lignin, a chemically unstable substance whose rapid but incalculable degradation puts all the paper made in the last century at risk. Although papermaking techniques developed in the last decade, notably the thermopulp system of forced steam digestion, can diminish this effect, they cannot cure it. And without some means of arresting decay from this cause, the rapid onset of brownish discoloration and brittleness a new but by now all too familiar phenomenon to most readers will affect an increasing amount of books and archives. These problems are common to most libraries, but they have a peculiar force and their solution a special urgency in the great British National Reference Library whose center is still in Bloomsbury. It's now no longer part of the British Museum, though it remains in its old premises, and its new status as part of the British Library has sharpened the contrast between it and what used to be the other parts of the museum. The majority of the contents of the British Museum increase sparingly, are structurally inorganic, and their use consists mainly of ex exhibition in appropriate surroundings. Only a handful of the contents of the library are exhibited, and their major use is to be read and handled by readers. Almost all are organic, and they increase annually by a substantial amount. Attempts to resolve these contrasts played a large part in the history of the British Museum, but the Bloomsbury site could not expand, and the growth both of material and services to the public and the staff that they require already filled it to overflowing 50 years ago. The expansion of the library, the problems it causes, make it harder and harder to stop active decay, let alone improve the conditions in which materials are kept and people work. At that point, I'm going to break off and tell you two very short moral stories. 
which were both told to me by the head of conservation at the British Museum, or rather one was told to me and the other was uh, uh, recited in my presence to somebody else. His name, oddly enough, was Barker, and we used to exchange each other's mail uh, with, with happy indifference. And Dr. Harold Barker, was, who's now retired, was a man who had given this and other matters a great deal of thought. And the first instance of this came my way when a joint meeting was held of the British Museum and the British Library and the Government Office of Works, which is responsible for finding us all premises over the next uh, 10 to 20 years, at the end of which the British Library hopes to move to a brand new building and the problem of uh, being mixed up with the British Museum will cease. We'd gone over the, these problems, uh, which do stretch over 10 to 20 years, and we're just on the brink of winding up when Harold suddenly turned to the Office of Works Engineers and said, meditatively to them, have you thought what's going to happen to our things when 40 tons of water insulation are removed? I must say I'd never thought of the library in quite that light before. But uh, it made, my, made one realize what uh, enormous, perhaps uh, of all the protection that books get offered in this transitory and dangerous life, proximity to lots of other books is perhaps the biggest advantage they enjoy. The other story uh, which he told to me directly, which has a, a bearing on what I've just been saying now, uh, related to certain organizational problems. The, 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 when the British Library and the Museum were divorced, the British Museum, which had been a series of more or less independent and often marauding baronies on the fringe of uh, a central library, now had to join forces and evolve a common policy. And one of the things that ha had to be done was that they had to put the conservation departments together into one unified conservation department. And this had been done. It had caused a certain amount of trouble and administrative... Uh, uh, ill feeling, but it had been done. He said, except, except, he said, for the Department of Clocks, he said, I still haven't really got them properly under control. But he can't, you see, you can't call them conservators, the people who work there. He said, you know what they do? They make them go. <laughs> and I suddenly realized that if you were fortunate enough to own a clock built to a design by Leonardo da Vinci, by Benvenuto Cellini, you would, in fact, regard it as a crime to let it auto-destruct itself by going, and you would regard £5,000 or $10,000 or whatever it would cost to build a, an absolutely faithful facsimile of it as money very well spent, and then the facsimile could go, and Benvenuto Cicciolini's uh, uh, silverware would be untouched. But I can't do that. I've got 10 million objects stretching back to the 6th century AD, and indeed, if you count the papyri, going back to the BC, and they've all got to go. And this problem of what are, in one sense, the word museum objects in use is the problem which, to which there's no unique solution. Every example is a new problem. Well, returning to the British Museum, over two centuries ago, the inadequacies of Montague House were a matter of complaint. Uh, it was inconvenient, cold, dark, and damp, and the trustees were perennially short of funds to improve or enlarge it. With hindsight, one can see that those were halcyon days indeed for the books. Humidity, cold, dark, it was an ideal environment. If few readers came, that was no loss to the books. <laughs> this paradoxical state was not to continue. The trustees' inability to alter or expand the premises came to an end in 1815, when this responsibility was transferred to the new Office of Works. The decision to rebuild was equally the result of external pressure caused by the acquisition of George III's library, one of the great 18th century collections, acquired from George IV in 1823. Smirk's designs for a new gallery for the library led to the realization that a new building was required. Gradually, Montague House and the surrounding buildings were demolished. Smirk's gallery became one side of a quadrangle. 
finally completed when it was filled in with Panizzi's great domed central reading room in 1857. Now, a major force in the building program was the expansion in the number of books acquired as the Industrial Revolution took over the printing trade. Every available inch of space was gradually filled up. The quadrants between the original quadrangle and the reading room were filled in. One was then fitted with the new cast iron honeycomb floors. And we've spread to now 23 buildings dotted around the London area, uh, which the movement of books to and from which gives us one more headache in our attempts to preserve them. One of the earlier, it's now about 130 years old, uh, expansions of the library site was the building of a bindery. And this has been, of course, one of the pluses in our scene. Um, faced now with the task of having to create a new organization with the addition of what has now become known as the Science Reference Library, it used to be the Patent Office Library, with new problems of readers and staff, the new British Library Board might have been forgiven if they had set a low priority on the task of putting the books themselves to rights. But this would not have allowed for one final factor which suddenly converted all the other conservation problems into an abrupt and major crisis. Between 1950 and 1975, the world investment in learning, and most of all in the United States of America, rapidly increased the number of readers and the usage of books increased still more. This process was yet further accelerated by the publication in 1959 to 1966 of the general catalogue of printed books, one of the greatest contributions to learning made in this century, yet paradoxically a threat to the books it listed. This notably increased the volume of orders for microfilming, a process that further endangered the stock. Books which, though their bindings and paper had been weakened by soot and gas fumes and virtually ruined by too much heat and too little humidity, had managed to keep up appearances while they were left alone, were now suddenly used and used again. Quite quickly, more and more of them began to fall to pieces. It's all your fault, in fact. Faced with this problem, the British Library Board sounded the alarm and commissioned a detailed report on the situation from Dr. Nigel Seeley, director of the laboratory of the London University Institute of Archaeology. This set out in detail just how serious the accumulated troubles of the past were and how limited the means of dealing with them, and made a series of recommendations for dealing with the situation. Action was prompt, ahead of conservation with responsibility for introducing remedies and a large budget was allocated for this purpose. As things stood then, something over one million books, 10% of the whole, were in need of repair. Storage and conditions were bad and hard to put right in an overcrowded building. The annual budget for binding, including conservation, had mounted steadily to over one and a half million pounds but this apparent increase had done no more than mark time with a steady increase in costs. In 1976-7, however, as a step to meet the crisis, a special grant of £250,000 was made, increased to half a million pounds in 1977-8. The tide had begun to turn. It was vital for the British Library in the aftermath of the Seeley Report and while taking note of these trends and the progress of conservation in libraries, to take the wider view of problems which could now be seen to be deep-rooted and all-pervasive. It was accordingly in the belief that conservation, in the restricted sense of repairing damage that had already taken place, was only part of the general task of preservation that the new campaign began. Four immediate needs were clear. Urgent first, first aid measures an immediate increase in the resources for binding and conservation was needed, something had to be done to improve storage conditions, and a detailed but rapid review of the whole stock was required to determine the medium and long-term needs to establish, in effect, a proper policy for the preservation of the library. The first aid measures took three forms. The first and most immediate was publicity directed primarily at readers, but also at staff and the general public. It was vital that readers should realize that a book is a tool that needs to be handled skillfully, 
not used or abused until it was, is worn out and then discarded or replaced. No replacement may be possible. Accordingly, notices, handwritten to give an extra sense of urgency, listing the basic do's and don'ts of handling books, were printed and distributed to all the desks and tables in the main reading room. Copies of these notices were also distributed to staff, asking them to enforce these rules and by implication to apply them to themselves. I might here again briefly interpose an, a, a, an incident which shows the sort of thing one's up against in dealing with a large and old established bureaucracy. I wrote these notices out, as I say, in my own hand to give a kind of sense that there was somebody back there with a hand and a pen who cared about this sort of thing. and sent them off saying to the uh, British Library printing department saying, please could I have these printed uh, in ex exactly, photographed exactly as they stood. Three weeks later, a large pile of pieces of paper arrived on my desk, all neatly set out like a, in, an IRS uh, income tax form, uh, looking as off-putting and official and boring and unreadable as could be imagined. So I very gently went back to the printing department and said, no, I'd really meant what I said when I said I wanted my handwriting copied. And the head of the printing department said, you don't mean just like that. <laughs> and I said, y yes, just like that. And he thought for a bit, he said, we'd have to put a HMSO, that's a government printer's office, reference order number at the bottom of it, you know, so I said, I'd be entirely happy for him to do that. And he had another long pause. Then he said, I don't think we will. <laughs> of, of, such, of such trivia, uh, one's victory is made. Well, besides these, uh, uh, that this was the first of our first aid measures, Secondly, temporary boxes for books and envelopes for pamphlets, both made of acid-free material, were introduced. These served two purposes. First, they provided an immediate means of protecting fragile or damaged material. And secondly, they provided a conspicuous sign that the contents had to be handled carefully. And they were re these were reinforced by a special danger notice, which we added to them. And the latter function, that is, the warning notice, the warning effect of these boxes, was as important as the former, that is, their actual power to protect. Ample supplies of both boxes and envelopes were provided in all the storage areas and at the delivery and return points. I should explain that these things are throwaway cheap. They, they cost uh, about 30 to 40 cents to make a box, 10 cents to make an envelope, and uh, we can afford to manufacture and distribute them by the thousands, and if they get eaten up and destroyed too bad, we reckon that that's a loss well worth taking. Third uh, first aid measure, immediate steps were taken to restrict the use of some material which was in danger of dissolution from overuse. The most immediate case in need was the Bernie newspapers collection. Many of these were unique, and the whole collection so much used that it had regularly to be rebound, sometimes as many as, as often as every two or three years. In some cases, the leaves were so worn that the, pr that the print was in danger of disappearing from the pages. The need to curtail any further damage was vital if the ultimate task of conservation was to be achieved. Steps were accordingly taken to limit consultation to those whose needs could only be met by the original, other books whose preservation was threatened by use were similarly treated, and in order to meet readers' ordinary needs, microfilm copies were made, and this led to a decisive new strategic element in preservation policy, the provision of substitutes for endangered material. Another brief anecdote. When we announced to our readers that we were proposing to, to restrict use of the Bernie newspapers, a fair amount number of whales went up. And we hastened to assure people who were doing theses on John Wilkes, for example, that no, the St. James's Chronicle for 1763 through 6 would not be among the first to go. And by and large, because our readers are very good and kindly and above all regular attenders, we 
worked out a modus vivendi. There was, however, a large public research organization, which had better remain nameless, uh, which took a very different line about this. And one can see them gossiping away in, in their coffee breaks over the iniquities of all this. And finally, they wrote a round robin signed by themselves to the director general of the British Library, saying that this uh, appalling and misguided measure uh, had uh, set back their work by four years. I'm not quite sure how they calculated that, but it had set back their work by four years. Would he please instruct this uh, jumped-up new jack-in-office uh, to go back to wherever he had come from and cease to obstruct their long-term obstacles, uh, long-term uh, work, and uh, um, revert to the previous... Uh, if I would not abandon this policy, at least to give them special access to all the material whenever they wanted it. And so I read to the last people who would ever touch this material. They wrote back to say that that was a risk they were perfectly prepared to take. <laughs> Now, these first aid measures initiated the campaign. In the longer term, however, the first priority was to increase the volume of real conservation work. The Bloomsbury Bindery had, since 1927, been managed on behalf of the library by HMSO, Her Majesty's Stationery Office, the equivalent of the Government Printing Office. Over the years, HMSO had considerably expanded these services. The Bloomsbury Bindery now had 130 industrial staff, including those at outstations at the Collendale Newspaper Library and the House of Lords. Other binderies dedicated to the library's needs were established in London and Manchester. Their total production amounted to about 100,000 items in 1975-6, of which only a small proportion consisted of conservation work, the remainder being new binding, which still fell far short of demand. With a backlog of a million items in need of repair and progressive decay adding to that figure at about 35,000 items per annum, it was clear that only a substantial increase in production could reverse the trend. For reasons of space alone, let alone staffing, this expansion could not be compassed within the, British, within the Bloomsbury bindery. An HMSO was therefore empowered by the British Library to draw up contracts with commercial binders to undertake new binding and straightforward rebinding on the library's behalf. Once the initial problems were solved, and there were some, this experiment proved a success. The removal of the main burden of first binding enabled the Bloomsbury Bindery to increase and diversify its conservation resources, and eventually the contractual arrangements were extended to include basic conservation techniques, including deacidification and lamination of damaged paper, which made it possible to begin the long task of repairing the library's 19th century materials, which were already in fragile condition. HMSO also arranged contracts with Remploy. Remploy is a commercial company which uh, employs disabled people and uh, obtains considerable tax advantages from so doing. Uh, we employed them to, on the basic maintenance routines, what we call furbishing, which is simple repairs to uh, paper, torn maps, torn plates, loose leaves and above all, the uh, application of dressing to the leather-bound books. Hitherto, this had only taken place at Bloomsbury, and we were now able to extend it to the outstations. Uh, production steadily increased, up 165,000 items in 77 to 8, 206,000 in 1978 to 9, 253,000 in 79 to 80, 246,000 in 80 to 81, 290,000 in 81 to 82. During this period, the total expenditure on binding and conservation rose from £1,483,000 to £3,277,000. Uh, the increase in unit cost, which you may have noticed, that's, you see, uh, we only went up by something like, uh, well, no, it's about 50%, 100% up in numbers, and it's 100%, a little bit more, about 140% up in budget. The increase in unit cost reflecting not so much inflation as the higher proportion of complex conservation work as opposed to straightforward binding. In 1980, for the first time, the backlog of unbound new books was caught up, and hence that drop, which you may, if you were feeling very wide awake with my figures, have noticed in 1980 to 81, 
we actually dropped back by about 7,000 items in that year. This now made it possible, in order to strengthen and diversify the productive capacity of our Bloomsbury bindery, to introduce an incentive scheme. Now, contrary to predictions, this was established with surprisingly little difficulty. Everybody said, you can't do this to craftsmen. They are the only judges of the work that they can do. If you try and apply work-study methods to them, they'll all go on strike or their work will disintegrate or something. It hasn't happened. The production has gone up very substantially, and so, I'm glad to say, has the craftsmen's take-home pay. I don't believe the standard of the work has dropped at all. In all this, the library had taken a more and more direct interest, and between 1981 and 83, by arrangement with HMSO, it, gr it gradually assumed direct control, first of the Bloomsbury bindery, and then of contracts with commercial binders. HMSO continues to manage the Manchester bindery, and we are planning to start conservation facilities there. The expansion of binding and conservation has been remarkable, but it has only been achieved by remarkably generous allocations of funds by the British Library Board. The overall conservation budget now stands at £4 million, a figure considerably above that allocated to acquisitions. At the same time, this success has been achieved by building on strength. The library already had substantial conservation facilities. Progress has also been limited by the fact that the management of the binaries lay outside the library's control. The increase in production has been restricted in scope, while the backlog of unbound new material has been virtually annihilated and substantial progress has been made with rebinding and conservation of recent material, little has been done as yet to solve the more complex problems of older material or the vast threat presented by post-1880 material on short-life paper. Plans are now in hand to expand the resources available for the first of these, and there is hope, as we shall see, of progress in the second. If increasing conservation has tended to dominate the course of events, it's not from any underestimate of the importance of the overall needs of preservation. In 1977, the need was stressed to have an accurate record area by area of the conservation backlog. A conservation survey team was formed who completed this task in about six months. The original object of this was to identify areas with common problems whose conservation could thus be handled in bulk. This system of advanced planning for conservation was dependent on a computer system, which remains yet to be installed, although all the basic planning for it has been done. The conservation survey team, deprived of its original function, became a kind of flying squad which has taken on the responsibility for environmental control and the all-important area of developing a policy for preservation. The environmental control of, con of collections, most of them housed on inadequate shelves in buildings no longer suitable for housing books, is a forbidding task. The main storage areas in Bloomsbury and Chancery Lane have expanded beyond measure. The buildings have been altered and enlarged so much that proper environmental control is impossible. The heating systems have become extremely complex and difficult to control, as have the drainage systems. I well know this. I, after I'd been there for some time, I managed to obtain an audience with Mr. Barrett. Mr. Barrett was an immensely grand person who was in charge of all the, the, the superior boilers of London. He was in charge of Buckingham Palace, the Tower of London, the Houses of Parliament, and the British Museum. And when I put to him our problems, and he began to realize that I was a fellow human being who could be relied on not to uh, abuse or make life difficult for him, he said, I'll tell you, he said, what the trouble is. He said, there have been people come here, laid down pipes a century ago. Been more fellows come along after them, laid pipes down maybe 70 years ago. I don't believe, he said, the second lot knew where the first lot went. And he said, I'll tell you something, I don't know where any of them go. <laughs> With all these problems, the conservation survey team has struggled to provide some measure of improvement. Environmental conditions have been measured all over the library and a constant check maintained in notoriously bad area. Collections in particular danger, such as the Stein collection, that was the, the, the great collection of paper from the Tonghuan Caves, which were brought back from Sir Oral, by Sir Oral Stein, where a, um, a, you know how 
polite the Chinese are. Well, a, a large deputation from mainland China came to call on us, and their, the picture of these fragments in the state in which they were so far shocked them out of their invincible oriental politeness that they wrote a rather rude letter saying they thought we ought to do something about it. So we have, but it's, it's only been at the cost of other urgent needs. Um, Areas which have suffered from solar gain have been protected with ultraviolet film, but more often than not, the team's efforts have been expended not on improvement, but in, in preventing worse conditions. Overheating or the endless series of minor flood damage caused by the impact of August thunderstorms on uh, overstrained buildings. I can't tell you how glad I am to be here and not in London. And it is quite clear that none of these problems will be achieved before the library moves to the new building at Summers Town. A second and more substantial part of the conservation survey team's work has been almost accidentally provided the foundation of the last of the form requirements identified in 1976, the need for an overall preservation strategy. The idea of substitution evolved as a result of the Bernie newspaper experiment has come to have a dominant strategic influence. The essence is simple. The conservation of all parts of the collections in need is far beyond available resources. Further loss can only be prevented by diminishing use. Materials thus restricted cannot be permanently inaccessible. Therefore, a substitute must be provided for them. Substitutes could be of different kinds, a simple duplicate for a damaged printed book, an elaborate facsimile of an illuminated manuscript or map, a plain photographic reprint of plain printed or manuscript materials, or a microfilm or microfiche, or now, I suppose, an optical disc. There were problems. Duplicates of books already damaged are not easily found in good condition. Facsimiles, when available, were easily employed, but they were and are few. Microform was the natural and most available means of expanding resources for making substitutes. The library already had substantial holdings of microfilm, and microfilm readers were available. Further, the library receives orders for and makes microfilm on a very substantial scale. In the course of exploring the potential of microform substitution, a number of problems emerged. First and foremost was the difficulty of reversing, in effect, the whole tenor of library procedures directed at making material available to readers so that a certain small proportion was unavailable. I always used to think of myself as a man trying to take up 70 sheets of corrugated iron sheeting which are leaning against one wall and lean, lean them against another. If you push the whole 70 at one end, you, nothing happens. You have to go back to the other end and peel them back one after the other, very slowly indeed, and by the time you've got to the 70th, they're all going the other way. But it's as hard as that. Secondly, there was the problem of allocating camera space to theoretically non-revenue-earning conservation microfilming at a time when almost all the library's existing resources for camera work were hardly enough to keep up with external orders. We'd got all these orders coming in. And lastly, there was the problem of monitoring the process of filming itself. Operators were not initially familiar with the requirements of fragile material, though they swiftly learnt. At the same time, the need to monitor all microfilm and all photocopy orders became terribly evident. All these problems were new to the library, and the burden of solving them and providing the staffing of the solutions was assumed by the conservation survey team. One positive element to emerge from this substitution program was the possibility of earning revenue from it. Microform masters, in addition to providing positive copies for reader use within the library could also be used by microform publishers who would pay a royalty to the library on copies sold. We managed to do such a deal with the Bernie newspapers and it brought in $80,000 in the first year that we started. The success of this operation encouraged its extension to a far larger section of the stock, the library's 18th century English books, already the subject of a major computer-based recataloging enterprise, which is called ESTC. So large an operation, 150,000 items over 15 years, lay beyond the library's reprographic resources, and the task of filming, as well as publishing, was let out commercially after competition to a film originally based in this country, now in the United Kingdom, called Research Publications Limited. As this project proceeds, an increasing amount of the National Printed Archive will be available in microform. The complex preliminaries of checking the material for filming, packing it for transport, 
have added to the workload of the hard-pressed conservation survey team. One important element in the British Library's preservation policy has been a substantial investment in technical research. Uh, the first was a scheme uh, put in hand by the British Leather Manufacturers Research Association with two objects, to provide some method of retannage to protect new skins from the noxious effects of existence in urban surroundings, and to provide some protection for leather-bound books, books which are bound in leather already, arresting though not restoring damage. This project is now complete, and the full report will be published shortly, together with leaflets, which will be available free to anybody who applies for them, on how you treat uh, both new skins and old leather-bound books. From 1980 onwards, the library has funded three research projects at the universities of Surrey and Sussex and an Imperial College, London, pursuing different aspects of the problems presented by degraded paper. While the British Library, unlike the Library of Congress and the Bibliothèque Nationale, is not faced with the problem of a huge volume of material on paper too fragile to touch, the proportion of the total collections on wood pulp paper with a short expectation of life is rapidly increasing. It is already too vast to be met by one-off conservation methods of the kind currently available in the library's binaries. While the Library of Congress and the National Library of Canada have already invested in substantial plants designed to deacidify paper in bulk, this only partially meets the problem, which is compounded by the inbuilt deterioration of, of such paper due to the lignin in its furnish. In other words, you can deacidify paper till you're blue in the face, but it'll still go on rotting if it's made of wood. The British Library projects are therefore aimed not only at deacidifying paper, but also at providing a chemical support system, easily applied in the vapour phase, in gas that is, without increasing bulk or, or causing leaves to adhere to each other, by graft copolymerization. The problems are considerable, involving a careful balance of the original monomer and its initiator. Progress so far is promising, and if a successful solution is achieved, the next objective will be a prototype plant capable of subsequent upgrading to bulk treatment. It's premature to estimate the capital or running costs, but it is hoped that the unit cost of treatment by such a process would be affordable. Such a, progress, a process would cut the cost of the library's long-term preservation requirements substantially, thus freeing resources for overtaking the backlog of uh, conservation and the day-to-day -day preventive measures. Besides these activities, the library's small conservation staff resources are heavily involved outside the library. We have to give technical advice and help on the structure and decipherment of materials and on their conservation. We get inquiries from all over the country. Uh, people come and call. We get telephone uh, messages, and I sometimes feel that if we all stopped work and just answered the telephone for a while, uh, we would be fully occupied without doing any conservation work at all. All these preoccupations, however, form part of the policy prescribed by the British Library Board of assisting other libraries as far as possible. They reflect a widespread view that the library should take a lead in the formation of a national policy for the preservation of books and libraries. This includes the research project into, the overall, into overall national conservation needs, which is being funded by the library. What then of the future? Two themes predominate in the library's approach to the demands made by the policy we've suggested. The need to integrate preservation with other functions within the library and the realization that not all material can be preserved and that nothing can be preserved forever. Real preservation cannot be achieved in isolation from the co total cost in use of the library's materials. Acquisition, processing, public service, and preservation are the integrated sum of the library's activities and cannot be treated in isolation from each other. Economies are clearly needed in some respects to achieve the extension of preservation activities. This must be achieved at no cost to the current balance of the library's total function. Economies in acquisition by a reduction of duplicated holdings, for example, must be matched by a parallel reduction in first binding costs, either by simplifying the binding pr process for low-use material or, in the case of material with a short-term use, by not binding at all. Similar economies in processing must be made, and while there must be no decline in public service, some economy in delivery systems is essential. All these measures require a revision of the traditional attitudes of the library's function 
a revision required not only by the new approach to preservation, but the changing needs of readers, technological developments of all sorts, and changes in the nature of society. Finally, planning for deterioration is the key to the library's future preservation policy. All material decays, a term will eventually come to the Codex Sinaiticus. But the library's historic responsibility is at present thrown off balance by the rapid re preponderance of material with a short life. We must admit the necessity of loss of some material and concentrate on saving what can be rescued on a proper economic basis. This must involve cooperation with other libraries in acquisition as well as preservation policy so that the maximum coverage in national terms is achieved at the minimum cost. This will further demand the admission that not all material can be preserved in its original form and that some must be transferred to alternative media, whether optical disks or computer files. These in turn will present formidable concept preservation problems. The library has no option but to welcome these since it will have to learn to accept primary material in this form. A flexible and innovative attitude to the benefits as well as the problems ahead will be essential. I could use it. Uh, last August, we had a hell of a flood which fl went into the basement of one of our main storage areas and the Great Ordnance Survey of Great Britain escaped by a whisker. And 30 volumes of Korean state papers were irrevocably damaged by water. Unfortunately, owing to some peculiar ordinance of the Treasury, I had to man, ma, mend the damn things. I could willingly have spent the money on, which I had to spend on Korean state papers on repairing some of our 16th century books. I yearn for the day when the Korean government, instead of sending these enormous newspaper-sized volumes of agrarian statistics on wood pulp paper sends them in on optical discs. If I fail to preserve all the statistics about Korean agricultural developments on optical discs, I'm prepared to live with the problem. <laughs> One final footnote. I've used the terms conservation and preservation without properly defining them. And since they underlie the whole, our whole approach to the past, present, and future of the British Library, I will attempt to do so now. Conservation, the pra practice of restoring what has decayed, has a long and honorable history and has long a prospect in the future. Preservation is the art of anticipating and preventing decay. The idea is not recent, even if the usage of the word in this context is. The basic good housekeeping qualities of tidiness, cleanliness, watchfulness in the maintenance of books and libraries is the foundation of preservation. All that is suggested here is an extension of these old virtues to a wider spectrum of the activities of a national or indeed any library.